Good evening, everyone. Before I fully immersed myself in this tradition, the tradition, this Theravada Vipassana tradition, I was living in a uh, Rinzai Zen monastic community for about uh, six years. And kind of the, the trajectory of it was I, was I was there for about a year, year and a half, and I really fell in love with this path, with this, this practice, with the Dharma. And after that, I got ordained and continued since then uh, for the, the remaining time that I was there. Uh, and it was, a, it was a demanding life. It was, uh, it was wonderful just because of the intensity of it. And I have to be honest with you, I do not um, miss uh, getting up at three o'clock in the morning every morning. <laughs> I like the Vipassana world. It's a little bit easier on my system. And at the same time, it was, it was an incredible experience. So I was really trying to diligently give myself over to the lifestyle and the practice. And then, uh, it was probably, maybe after a couple of years I was ordained, I hit this huge wall. And I, I remember there was a specific evening that kind of embodied this huge wall that I hit. It took place, I was coming back from an interview with the Zen master I was practicing with. And uh, for some reason, it, it started to manifest this huge wall. It's just being emotionally shattered. And what was within that emotional shattering was this huge doubt that emerged. And I got really hooked by it. And I'm sure most of you have probably experienced this in your, your practice to, on a subtle level and maybe an intense level of how doubt can weave the most convincing stories that feel so real. Have you noticed that? So compelling. And kind of the story that was coursing through my mind was something like, you know, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> it was kind of the theme of it. Here I am sitting for long hours and not getting a lot of sleep, a lot of body pain. And not only that, I have this shaved head and I'm wearing these black robes. And when I look around, all these people have shaved heads with black robes. What am I doing here? And then... Um, and then other stories came up. So this whole doubt about the practice and the scene that I was in. And then it, it, it turned, it kind of turned inward in the sense of, I can't do this. Maybe all these other people can do this, but I can't. And then the shame and the judgment, the self-judgment started to, to, to arrive in full force. It was a dark night. You could say it was, it was the night that I, I really felt this experience of losing my faith in this practice, in this path, and also in myself. And this is what I want to uh, talk about tonight, is, is, is these doubts, these, these dark nights that we might face, but also the importance of, of what can really address it, which is this quality of faith or confidence. As I said, some of you out there might have had experiences like this with doubt, those dark nights in some kind of manner. And again, it can be around both of these themes of this doesn't work, this practice that I'm doing. 
You know, here I am, I'm being mindful, and the anger keeps on coming, the sorrow keeps on coming, the confusion keeps on coming, that wandering mind keeps on coming. It just doesn't work. There can be a, a sense of a distance from the teachings. It can even start to spiral out. What am I doing here? I'm wasting my life. How does this apply to the rest of my life? And then you too, maybe some of you also have experienced that sense of when it turns in on yourself. I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. Maybe the other people here can do it, but not me. It can be so paralyzing, that, that, that experience of losing faith, losing the confidence in this path and in this practice and in yourself. And I think it was through that that I really started to realize the importance of faith, the importance of competence. It's such a, a key piece for this path. You know, and the, the Buddha speaks to this. If you, you know, if you look at those lists that the Buddha was fond of, for example, the five spiritual facu- faculties. I don't think it was a mistake that the, the first one is faith. Or there's a discourse called the Upanisa Sutta, which is a description of the, the conditions that allow this mind to move towards awakening. What's one of the first foundational qualities? Faith, confidence. It's a primary condition, it's a foundation of what we're doing here. It's really so necessary. And I'd like to share with you a, a story and a striking image that I think helps uh, flesh this out some. Once upon a time, <laughs> the Buddha was living in the city of Magadha and he went out in the morning for alms round. And there was a Brahmin, uh, uh, Kasi Bharadvaja, who was out plowing his fields with his workers. And he, the Buddha came upon them at a time when uh, Kasi Bharadvaja and his workers were just beginning to eat. So he thought, oh, okay, I will stand here with my alms bowl. Alms bowl. And as uh, Kasi Bharadvaja saw him standing there, this is what he, he said to him. Quite quite harsh, but but striking. He says, I, recluse, plow and sow, and only after having plowed and sown do I eat. You too should plow and sow, and only after having plowed and sown should you eat. It's kind of a long-winded say, way of saying to the Buddha, get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I remember when I was a Zen monk, we used to go down early in the morning to, um, uh, we were, uh, there was a Zen center outside of Los Angeles, and we'd go early in the morning to the LA Produce Market, which is one of the biggest produce markets in the world, and we would stand, um, and uh, certain vendors would give us food. But sometimes there would be that remark, <laughs> yo, get a job. <laughs> I did not have this great reply the way the Buddha did. <laughs> And so he replies to the Brahmin, he says, Oh, I do indeed plow and sow, Brahmin. And it's only after ha- having plowed and sown do I eat. And then Kasi Bharadvacha says, But Gotama, where is your yoke and your plow and your plowshare and your oxen? I mean, you say you plow and sow and then you eat, but, but where is your plowing and your sowing? 
you claim to be a farmer, but I don't see it. And then the Buddha replies, he says, faith is the seed, practice the rain, and wisdom is my yoke and plow. Modesty is the pole, mind the strap, mindfulness my plowshare and goad. Body and speech are guarded well, and food and drink have been restrained. Truthfulness I use for weeding, and gentleness urges me on. Effort is my beast of burden, pulling me onward to safety. On it goes without returning, where? Having gone, one does not grieve. This is how I plow my plowing. The crop it yields is deathlessness, is awakening. And when one is plowed this plowing, one is released from all suffering. Quite moving. And as these good Buddhist stories go, Kasi Bradvacha was moved and he uh, uh, then places food into the alms bowl of the Buddha. And I think this comes from the commentaries, but it's a great addition. It said that when Kasi Bradvacha put food into the, the bowl of the Buddha, it sizzled and hissed. <laughs> and, and the connection was is that, you know, with plows, you know, if, if you're plowing a field a lot and you pick it up, and if you were to touch it, it would, it would literally burn you because it's so hot from the work it's doing. So again, faith is the seed and, and practice the rain. We need the seed of faith to carry our practice forward. And not only do we need the seed, but, but it needs to be alert, nurtured along the way. It needs to be nurtured while you're on this retreat. You know, just as like when we're growing a plant, it needs nurturing, it needs the water, it needs the care for it to grow. And what I'd like to do is to begin with uh, an example of this quality of faith that, that I feel is necessary for this path. And, and then afterwards to, to talk about how, how do we nurture the seed? So what's, a, what's an act of faith or an act of confidence that, that might inspire our own faith? And I'd like to give the example of uh, Vedran Smelovic, who um, in the early 90s was living in Sarajevo. <clears throat> and you might remember in the early 1990s, from 1991 to 1995, was the, the siege of Sarajevo. It was, a, it was a, a siege of an entire city for close to four years. And what had happened is was the Serbian forces had actually uh, surrounded the city. And it was, it was a, a horrendous and difficult place to live. And, and, and the reason is because there would be this uh, random shelling and sniper fire, fire that would happen um, upon the residents of, of Sarajevo. Uh, electricity was cut off, heating was cut off, food and water were very difficult to obtain. This is, this is for such a long time. And what he did was so striking. What he did was he was a concert uh, uh, cellist, which you might remember was made famous by a novel. He would um, go out uh, randomly in his evening attire and play the cello. Sometimes it would be at funerals or in bomb shelters or bombed out buildings. 
in the streets, continually playing. It, it, it said that he played for uh, over 250 times these concerts in Sarajevo, really for the people of Sarajevo, for Sarajevo herself. I think it takes a deep faith and confidence to do something like that. And, and for him, probably a clarity of confidence in the power of, of, of playing music in such a situation. And what I want to point out about this faith and this confidence is he didn't play because he thought it would stop the siege the next day. He didn't play because he, he, he didn't think it was going to, because it was going to feed the people. He didn't play because it was going to immediately bring back heating or electricity or running water. He didn't play because he thought it was going to stop the sniper fire or the incessant daily shelling in some kind of immediate way. What I'm trying to point out with this is that this is not a kind of faith that hinges upon an act where you do one thing and then you have another thing immediately follow it. It's not this equation of A happens and then B happens. It was a much deeper faith. It was a much deeper confidence than that. What he did was deeply transformative. It deeply moved people. But in such a way that it's so difficult to track, such a mystery around it, yet so powerful. And, and, and the connect us with our practice. What I find is when my mind gets entrenched in a kind of faith, that's connected around when I do this, then this has to immediately happen. When I have this narrow view of where this is going, it, it completely undermines the process. Yes, we're here to have confidence in what we've, what we've seen about this practice, but there's still a, a kind of mystery to how this unfolds. And you might notice by, by now, it, it requires this kind of faith. It requires this kind of confidence. It's not like this immediate feedback loop. You probably have seen that. <laughs> we're, we're involved in something that's, that's much deeper than that, much ref more refined than that. It's like when you plant a seed, you need to have the faith, the confidence, when you care for it, that eventually it will, it will grow. But you don't know what day it's going to begin to grow. You don't know what day it's going to begin to sprout up or it's going to blossom. You need to have the confidence in that, in that process. And this kind of confidence, this kind of confidence that, that I feel Vedran Smailovic embodied through the playing of the cello during the siege of Sarajevo, hinges upon uh, some qualities. One, again, to, to use a story to exemplify it. There's a, a Zen story about the um, a Zen master Fayan, and this is actually before he had become a Zen master. He was on pilgrimage, um, going from temple to temple and practicing wherever he found himself. And on this pilgrimage, he came uh, uh, um, by the way of this hermit who was um, a well-respected Zen master by the name of Dizong. 
and Zizan came up from his, his hermitage in, in Esfayan, where are you going? And Fayan re- replied, on pilgrimage, wherever my feet take me. Which, which I so appreciate, just really clear. I'm on pilgrimage and I'm just going wherever my feet take me. And then Dizong questions them further. Remember, usually with Zen interactions, it's not just being nice. They're usually trying to probe and poke and see, see the depth of the practitioner in front of them. And so Dizong uh, probes further. He says, well, what do you expect from pilgrimage? And Fayan says, I don't know. And Dizong confirms this. He says, ah, ah, not knowing is most intimate. I think that, that's such a key. Not knowing is most intimate for what we're doing here. And yes, there's this encouragement that we have for all of you here to continue to know and to be aware of your experience, to, to see how it's fabricated. To notice, for example, what we've been talking about, for example, the, a pleasant vedna, a pleasant feeling tone to our sensation or a sound. And then how there can be a kind of reactivity around that, how there can be a story situated upon that. We see the different elements of it. We see how suffering unfolds. We see how the release from suffering unfolds. To know experience again and again and again. So I think the the not knowing of Fayan is not some kind of blind, ignorant not knowing. It's an open one. And I also what I want to point out about this interchange between uh, Fayan and, the, and the, this hermit, the Zen master Dizong, is that when, I think when Dizong asks them, what do you expect from pilgrimage? And Fayan says, I don't know. I don't think he was being clever or trying to give some kind of great Zen answer. I think he really didn't know. And what was so powerful is that he was okay not knowing. Where am I going on this? I have no idea. And you might notice in that it takes a kind of confidence. Just to go back to Vader and smell of it. Can you imagine going out and playing every day during the, sa- the siege and not knowing what the ripple effect of this is, but having the confidence that it has goodness in it, that it has power in it, a transformative power in it. And I think it's the same way here. Can you be on this pilgrimage, this journey? Going wherever your feet take you, the, 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 these steps of mindfulness, with the, the absolute confidence of its transformative and freeing quality, but not knowing, not knowing what to expect, not getting lost in expectations. This, I feel, is the not knowing that's, that's most intimate. And it allows me to be most intimate with my experience and with the unfolding of what we're doing here. The other reason I, I want to mention this also is that sometimes what begins to happen when we practice is we, 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 sometimes we don't even know it, we start to have a concept or some idea of what this freedom and transformation is all about. And it's true, we have some sense of it, like the Buddha is very clear on one level, the, the one way of defining freedom or awakening is a, is a mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
But then we can heap all these kinds of concepts around it. Sometimes what we're looking for is some state to rest in. Sometimes what what starts to happen is the mind starts to get concentrated. Sometimes concentration can be a hook. Concentration can feel really pleasant and good. The mind isn't wandering. feels stable. Such a wholesome quality and important quality, but there can be the sense of, oh, this is what it's all about. And maybe if I can just have this happen all the time, this will be a great retreat. (laughs) So what did I just describe? I just described dukkha. Because what's going to happen is you get really concentrated and then it's going to break up and your mind's going to wander for two or three days and you're going to feel miserable and frustrated because you can't get back there. It's a perfect recipe, don't you think? And I'm not dismissing the quality of concentration. It's an it's a, it's a important and beautiful quality and a place where we want to gain skill for cultivating it. But that's different than getting attached to it, getting hooked to it thinking that's what it's all about. Or we might be chasing after some kind of groovy insight that we've read about or we've heard about. What a great setup, huh? Or some kind of groovy experience. There's there's drugs you can buy for that. You don't have to sit for three months. (laughs) Just in case you're looking for that, there there is an easier way. So just to be aware of the mind that's looking for a state to reside in. And so what you might hear in this, and even this, this, uh, the sense of the, the mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion, it, the, the first inklings that we can get of this going towards this freedom is not so much the state or the experience that we're having, it's the mind's relationship to that. It's a relationship of not being entangled or complicating it. That, that's what we want to be uh, curious about is how, is how is the mind relating to this experience and having this curiosity and openness to explore that. That's, that's the heart of what we're doing here. And then we can still embrace this not knowing that is so intimate that Fion uh, manifested and expressed so beautifully. So one thing, that was one thing about how to nurture the seed of faith to have that in place. Some other things that can nurture the seed of faith. And what I'd like to do is, is to come back to this word uh, that uh, is translated as faith. Uh, the, the Pali word is sadha. And it's translated in different ways. And I want to start with, with one translation. It, it comes from uh, this Pali word, this, this verb, uh, uh, sarahati, which literally, literally means to put one's heart into or, or to put one's heart upon. So from this angle, this word sadha, I think one way of getting a sense of it is it's, it's like falling in love. To have faith and to have confidence is this movement of the hearts. At least this is what, what's been so important for me of, of being in love, of falling in love and staying in love with this path and this practice. It has this quality of an emotional relationship. That's one facet of it. And that's the question I'd like to ask you and you might even want to hold just briefly here is what's allowed you to fall in love with this practice? Maybe it's the inspiration of a teacher 
or the teachers or practitioners of the past or a community or the teachings themselves. Or it might be because of your own direct experience of how the Dharma has unfolded in your life, how it's moved you in some way. And that bleeds into this, this other aspect of faith when we talk about our own direct experience and how it's moved us is this, this quality of confidence, another way of, of translating it. Sometimes when we reflect on our own path, our own journey, it cultivates this quality of confidence for what we're doing. So this isn't a blind faith. This is a faith that's informed by, informed by what we've seen, what we've experienced. I'm sure Vedran Smelovic was, was out there because he had felt the power of music. He felt the power of playing the cello and, and, and concerts. And so what I'd like to do is just to take a, just a, a couple minutes right now to do a kind of reflection, just to reflect on um, what inspires you and what keeps you inspired. So just in light of this, I invite you to get in a position where you feel relatively comfortable. You can either close your eyes or look down at the ground. And just allowing the awareness to come inward, maybe feeling the body sitting. and reflecting what allowed you to fall in love with this path, this practice? What has inspired you? What keeps you inspired? Then you might just want to note that, notice that. And then you might want to begin to gradually open your eyes again and coming back into the room. I think that's an important thing to touch upon. And the reason why it's so important for each and every one of you to reflect on it is probably it's gonna gonna be very different for each and every one of you. We all come together to do this practice together and there's, we're, we're, we're sitting in a room of so much difference, which is so wonderful. And what's important, especially in this difference is to get a sense of what deeply, deeply has inspired you, what what allows you to, to remain in love. And then the next question is, is how can you keep in contact with being in love with the Dharma, with being in, in love with the practice? Because it's like any other relationship, right? We, we fall in and out of love. And so how do, you, how do you keep the juice going? 
And again, I just want to give a couple examples, and it's going to be different for each and every one of you. So I don't mean these as, as final by any way. I mean, I, I might mention all of these, and none of them you can relate to. And what's more important is the question. What's going to allow you to, to keep in contact with this quality of being in love with the Dharma? And I want to start more with the, the devotional side. For me, one thing that I, I do each time I sit, which I find so helpful, is the act of bowing. Because it has a, a few elements to it, which I find very helpful. One is it's a, it's a bodily expression, not a verbal expression, but it's a bodily expression, and it gets my entire body moving, which I find very helpful. And it, 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 and it represents for me this quality of deep respect or deep love for this path. And it's a particular kind of movement, right? It's, it's, it's the movement in particular of the body so that the head can go down to the ground. Or the feeling of me, for me is that it's going, that I'm bringing my head below, below this path and this practice. So that what's above me is this sense of, of this path and this practice, something that's so much vaster, so much more event, uh, immense than this small confining construction that I call me or myself. And it reminds me, it reminds me of this heart connection that I have with this path and the devotion I have to it. And again, I want to point out, bowing doesn't work for this way for everyone. For some, for some people, it can bring up the opposite. <clears throat> it can have different associations for you. So again, it's, it's exploring really what works for you. For others, it might be the chanting at night. Sometimes chanting is something that allows my heart to move in a way that keeps me in contact with my, my faith and devotion and confidence. For others, it might be simply engaging in this practice day to day. Again, how can you keep in contact with being in love with this path, this practice, with being in love with the Dharma? And then there's the other side of nurturing the seed of faith, and that's having to address the opposite, which is addressing doubt. And so I just want to offer a little bit uh, about how to address these dark nights when uh, doubt comes knocking on our door. I think the first thing is just the challenge and the importance of beginning to learn the skill of meeting this challenge of noticing it. You know, Aaron, uh, a few nights ago, talked about the, the hindrances. And you've probably noticed one of the, the qualities of all of the hindrances is that often they can be rolling along and we don't notice them. We can be blind to them. So that's the first thing, is just the ability to, to notice them is so powerful. And just that can be enough, really enough for the, the practice of the, to, to move forward, is noticing that a hindrance is a hindrance. One story about this, uh, once the, the, uh, the Buddhist monastic, uh, the Venerable Anuruddha had gone to uh, Sariputta and basically said, listen, Sariputta, I, I'm in this bind. You know, here I am, 
I have this psychic ability, what's called the divine eye, so I can see the thousand-fold world system. My energy, it's really firm, it's unremitting. Mindfulness, it's great. It's, it's alert, unconfused. Mind is, the body is tranquil and unperturbed. The mind is concentrated and one-pointed, and yet I'm not free. The mind is not free from, uh, from all these kilesas. It's not freed from clinging. What's up with this? What am I doing wrong? And Sariputta says, well, the whole thing about your divine eye, that's, that's what we call conceit. <laughs> and all that energy, that's, that's actually restlessness. And this whole idea that you're not awake yet, yeah, that's worry. <laughs> and then as, again, another good Buddhist story goes, the Venerable Anuruddha clearly sees these states and gives up on these states. And then uh, his mind uh, directs, directs it towards the deathless element and becomes fully awakened. Voila. <laughs> See how easy it is? <laughs> What's up? What's going on? Huh? <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? <laughs> so yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult, one, to notice these difficult states of mind. It's difficult to, to notice just that doubt's there. And it, it, it can be difficult to, to overcome it, to move through it. And on one level, I, I think when mindfulness is really strong, and you might have noticed this, when, when doubt does not have a lot of momentum, and you can just have the label, oh, doubt, oh, doubt is just like this. It doesn't have the power to overwhelm the mind. It's just something that arises and passes away. And yes, it can be a lot more complex than that. We need to have this patience, this self-compassion, bringing in these other elements as we allow mindfulness to do its work at its own pace so that wisdom can eventually arise. And I, I want to point out a particular thing about doubt. The, the tricky thing that I find about doubt is that, have you noticed that doubt can disguise itself as discernment? It feels like that. It feels like it can be discerning in the sense of it, we're just discerning on what's working and not working. So how do you tell the difference between skillful discernment? For example, the way Annie was talking about effort last night, that really it was a, a whole talk about the skillful discernment about um, wise effort and the art of that. So important. And how is that different than doubt? What I notice about the feeling of doubt, for example, just going back to that night that it was so clear to me when I was a monk, is that doubt is immobilizing. It, it, it puts me in a place of where I feel frozen and I can't move. It's like everything has stopped. Uh, one of, uh, in Shakespeare's play, Measure for Measure, for Measure one of his characters, uh, Lucio, puts it well. He, say, he says, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we often might win by fearing to attempt to do something. I found that really, really so well put. These doubts, these kinds of doubts, they're traitors, they deceive us. And how do they deceive us? They put in this fear of uh, uh, continuing to attempt something. That's the feeling of doubt. It stops us from practicing. And yet, 
discernment has a forward movement to it. It has this feeling of there's still a, a, a forward movement to it. It doesn't mean there's a straightforward movement to it. It just means there's a quality of a forward, forward movement to it. For example, maybe you're experiencing restlessness in your meditation and there's this discerning quality, this, this wondering, oh, maybe it would be better to go for a walk, to do more walking meditation. So you go and you're doing walking meditation and then there's a, what dawns upon you is that, oh, underneath this impulse to do walking meditation, there's just this attempt to avoid the restlessness. Oh, interesting. And there's, there's a recognition of that. And then it's, it's, it's this discernment of, oh, what I really need to do is to come back and do the sitting meditation and just to be with this, this restlessness and maybe using Aaron's suggestion of, of really feeling the bones in the body, coming into the body as a way of having this container, this capacity to be with the restlessness. And you might hear within that description, it might go veer here and there as we're getting clear about the most skillful approach to restlessness for this particular restlessness, but there's still movement in it. It's not the doubt where I've, I've stopped practicing. Can you be aware of that difference so we can begin to notice doubt for what it is? Oh, doubt. Oh, that's just, that's just doubt in the mind. To allow that to gain traction and momentum. So these are the, 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 some of these things that can help cultivate this quality of faith and confidence that, that, can, can, that can nurture the seed in terms of this, this not knowing, this quality of staying in contact with falling in love with it, with keeping that quality of, of being in love with the Dharma. And also being aware, being mindful of doubt arising. What do we have faith in? What do we have confidence in? And what I'd like to do is just to briefly use the frame of the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha to help frame this. And I offer this not as um, I'm telling you what to have faith or confidence in. When I share this with you, it's just to elicit thoughts of your own, reflections of your own, so you can figure this out for yourself, what's gonna work for you. Just these are ideas. So your, your job in, in when I offer this to you is you need to have a sense of what fits and what doesn't. What is it to have faith in the Buddha or confidence in that? For some people it is, it's having faith or confidence in the historical Buddha. That he was someone, a human being just like this, that was able to awaken. And we have confidence in the path that he laid out. But I think there's other uh, facets of this having confidence or faith in this domain of, of, of the path. And one I just mentioned, but I want to go in a little bit more deeply, which is our potential. Can you have confidence in your own potential? because the Buddha was a human being just like us. And this is something that, <clears throat> that I find that, that I know I have undermined quite a bit and I see uh, so often that awakening is somehow for those monastics in Burma or in Thailand. And we can have the sense that it's for someone else 
which is a way of undermining our own potential. All of us have this, this potential, this ability to wake up to some degree. A quote from Annie Dillard from her book, Holy the Firm, which I think expresses this and the dilemma that sometimes we can feel around this. I, I want to point out she's using this, this language, this Christian narrative to explain this, but I, th- I think it fits for what we're doing here as well. She asked the question, who shall ascend to the, into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Or maybe in the, the, the narrative that we're sharing with you, who, who shall awaken? And then she answers it. She says, there is no one but us. There is no one to send nor a clean hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, nor in the earth, but only us. A generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent fathers are all dead, as if innocence had ever been. But there is no one but us. There never has been. Do you hear what she's pointing out here? Truly, there's no one but us. And I I think what's implied in there, what she's pointed out is that often we feel like there's someone that's purer than us, that's better than us, out there that actually awoke. The people who have experienced awakening, they were humans like this. They, They had difficulties and troubles and challenges and these crazy mental states that plagued them just like you and me. There really is no one but us. Can you claim your own potential to have confidence in that? That I think is a quality of this faith, this confidence. You could say uh, faith or confidence in the Buddha. Another facet of this, again, Another story. Once upon a time, the Buddha was walking down a road and um, walked down this road and went into the forest to practice. And I I think it was a Brahmin by the name of Dona came upon the road after the the Buddha had walked uh, down it and saw the Buddha's footprints and just was I think he was pretty amazed by it because what he saw in the Buddha's footprints is that in the heel of the Buddha's footprints was this Dharma wheel with these thousand spokes in the hub of the wheel. So I'm sure he's thinking, wow, these are trippy footprints. What's up with the footprints? You know, very intrigued by it because he's, he had seen someone who was walking in the world in a radically different way. So inspired by it to meet a being, to, 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 to try to find a being who's walking in the world in a different way. And so he follows the footprints and he goes into the forest, <clears throat> probably disturbs the Buddha as he's sitting, but <laughs> these things happen. And he probably said, I don't think this is in the discourses, but I they probably left it out. He probably said, what's up with the footprints? Huh? <laughs> I've never seen anything like that. I mean, <laughs> and he, then he asks, you know, 
with these footprints, are you a deva or some kind of celestial being? And the Buddha said, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not a deva, I'm not a celestial being. And he said, well, are, are you a human being then? And the Buddha said, no. And so Dona asked, well, what are you? And the Buddha eventually says, I am awake. What would it be like to have confidence and to rest in wakefulness and simply being awake, to have confidence in that? Because have you noticed if your mind is like my mind, where my mind likes to rest, a lot of times is in description or figuring out or getting lost in all of these stories as if I'm gonna get a step further on the practice. It takes a confidence to come back to simply being awake to our experience. And some of it is because we don't fully trust it. Can you gradually deepen this quality of resting in the confidence of simply being awake, of simply noticing, simply being with your experience? Which I think uh, falls into uh, this, this next quality of, of having this confidence in the Dharma. You know, on one level, having a confidence or a faith in the teachings but also just like this quality of wakefulness in, in the practice itself, to trust it. I remember the, uh, when I went to Burma to practice, I was nervous. I'd never been to Burma. And I decided to go uh, practice with this teacher, Saida Upandita. And many of the stories that I was told about Saida Upandita did not leave me with um, a, a confident, warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> and so I called a friend of mine who had um, practiced in Burma quite a bit, and I said, so what do I need to know? How do I, how do I, um, how do I practice in Burma? And, and how do I deal with all this? His advice was, uh, I appreciated it so much. He said, well, all you need to do is you sit, and then you walk, and then you sit, and then you walk, and then maybe you eat. You might lie down to go to sleep, and then you wake up, and you sit, and you walk, and you notice. I found it incredibly helpful, because when my mind started to complicate things when I was on, on retreat, I would just be like, oh, I just need to engage in this, this simple practice of noticing what's going on. That's all I need to do. And it was the keeping it simple that I found so helpful to have the faith and confidence in that. And then the Sangha, having confidence, having faith in the Sangha. No one can do this path for you. No one can tread this path for you. And you can't do it alone. The Buddha was really clear about this. You probably know the story of Ananda asking the Buddha, uh, uh, Venerable One, what, what's half the holy life? And Ananda saying, isn't, isn't half the holy life uh, spiritual friendship? And he says, don't say that, Ananda. The spiritual friendship is the entirety of the, of the holy life. He, no one can tread this path for you and you can't do it alone. You might notice there is a kind of power that happens when we do this together. We create a silence together. Can you take that in, have confidence in that, to have faith in that? 
And I, I want to acknowledge, it can be tough if you have, you know, when I was practicing, I had such huge explosions of aversion and it just felt like I was either hating everyone around me or fearing them. <laughs> and one of my practices was to get a sense of beginning to at least sense that, oh, okay, there's something that we're doing together here in the quality of togetherness that I can begin to have confidence in and faith in. So important. We're these social creatures, these particular kind of mammals. And there's a kind of connection in the silence that can help carry our practice forward. And then one last thing that I think it's important to have faith or confidence in, which is a a tricky one. And that's uh, to have faith and confidence in difficulty. I want to share with you one Tibetan aspiration. It sounds a little crazy. It probably is a little crazy, but it's inspiring. It goes, grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say that every morning? Today, may I be given the appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this path so that my heart can be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion truly fulfilled. May it be so. It's a whole different turn. I mean, if your mind is anything like mine, I'm just hoping to have a halfway decent day sometimes. (laughs) Fewer difficulties, please. And yet I think there's something about beginning to turn toward difficulty in a skillful way. And this, this is always a big turning point in my practice, whatever's going on. I mean, just the other day, this happened yesterday while I'm here teaching this retreat. There was this kind of this explosion in this community that I serve in terms of just some unskillful interactions that are going on. And I got all of these emails and my first feeling was, I do not want to deal with this. <laughs> I like being here on the East Coast and I like to be away from this. Please do not contact me. And it just felt like, why is this happening to me? I, this is not my practice. And then there was the turn. Oh, yes, this too. So important because that's when the turn was, is that's when I could open up my practice to it. I was no longer exiling it. It it can be so helpful, just the simple yes. And I'd like to end with a a poem that I think expresses this quite well. It's a a poem by uh, the poet Pesha Gertler called The Healing Time. She begins, Finally, finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, 
holy. Finally, finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart. And I say, holy, holy. Would you be willing on this retreat to see that your difficulties and sufferings have a holiness to them? They're holy because they lead us onward. They lead us onward towards awakening. So may our faith and confidence in such things, even in things like difficulty, lead to the liberation of all beings. So let's sit just for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.